Welcome to NCAGT's podcast. Our mission is to dismantle the they'll be fine myth that often surrounds gifted learners. Our goal is to address the excellence gap faced by high ability students, including those from diverse backgrounds. Join us as we advocate for gifted and talented scholars to unlock their full potential. Please note the ideas and thoughts shared here are as diverse as our guests, not always reflecting the official NCAGT stance. So keep an open mind and let's explore a variety of perspectives together. I'm Amishi. I am a former gifted kid myself. I'm currently actually a student at Georgia State University and I create content and materials for gifted students. So as a gifted kid myself, I have the burnout story crashed and burnt out at the end of high school. And when I did that, I found a lot of things within the system that seemed wrong. And I took a gap year to actually research further into the system about the resources that are lacking with gifted education and neurodivergent education and I visited gifted schools, I shadowed gifted teachers, I just did a lot of research on these kinds of topics and started creating content about that to educate parents about it. And then I also started making boxes for local gifted kids with just activities. So that's me. (laughs) So when you say you burnt out in high school, can you tell us what that looked like and felt like? Absolutely. I, so as I was identified as gifted in kindergarten, I had always kind of just excelled, not just academically, but extracurricularly, debate, athletics, whatever it was. And I was used to doing all of that with, I would say, very minimal effort. I think I, looking back, had never really learned how to value effort in terms of the results. And so when I got to high school and I was taking all the AP classes and whatnot, I suddenly hit this point, it was actually during COVID, that I just couldn't keep up. And when I say couldn't keep up, it wasn't some an academic struggle. It was just I was lacking the motivation. This is also the time when I got diagnosed with ADHD, but I just didn't have the skills, the time management, the perseverance. And around that time is when I would say I really burnt out or hit that point where my natural intelligence was no longer a match for the challenges in front of me. And especially with online learning and whatnot. I would say I was really lucky in that I did have a support system. My parents never actually put like any pressure on me. They were super understanding and that made a huge difference. However, I would say where they lacked is that like most parents, they just weren't educated on what it means to be gifted and what it means to be twice exceptional. And so they didn't fully know how to support me in that time. And I I don't really think anybody did, especially the school system. So I think that is where a lot of the failures kind of started. And that's where I really looked into the school system and a lot of the contradictory policies that they have surrounding giftedness and things, because I wanted to see, you know, if this were to be fixed, where would that even start? What would that look like? So did you feel as though that you were alone or were there other classmates that kind of in the same program and classes that were experiencing the same thing as you or no? I don't think it's uncommon at all. I would say I felt isolated in the sense that 
I had surrounded myself with very high achieving people all of my life and all of my classes. And when I hit a stump because I suddenly had this neurodivergent trait that I didn't know how to handle that I never medicated for, they didn't hit that same stump. And so that competition and that, you know, that was isolating and that was weird, but I do have tons of friends that have different neurodivergent traits that felt the system was inadequate in supporting them the way that it was supposed to. And I know lots and lots of gifted children who, even though they did maintain their high achieving um, successes, they do still feel that they don't have the skills to properly exist in this education system. So, And how old were you when you were diagnosed with ADHD? I was in 11th grade, so 16. And when you heard that, how did you receive that information? I think I always knew I had ADHD. Um, (laughs) I just never looked much into it because I didn't see a reason to. Like I was successful in most of the things that I did. And um, but when I actually got the diagnosis is when I did a lot of research on what ADHD really meant. And I found out a lot of things about it that surprised me, um, starting with like even the name ADHD is really wrongly termed, right? And so as the more I learned about ADHD, the more I was able to be like, okay, this label is one that could have helped me vastly if I was aware of it, because I'm now understanding things about myself and my brain that I had no idea about before. I made it to college when, and then I got diagnosed with ADHD and I was just like, oh my gosh, if I just would have known, it was like a whole new world had opened up. And I was like, if I had known a lot of this about myself, I would have maybe not have been as hard on myself throughout high school. And if I could have had medication at an earlier age, I think it would have made a huge difference. I listened to a podcast called Women in ADHD. It's a really interesting podcast. A lot of it talks about how just being females, like you're just not, you weren't diagnosed as ADHD because it was such a boy thing. It was that like hyperactive boy that liked to wrestle, you know, <laughs> that's just not, that's not the reality of it. Um, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah, well, and you huge. said, I want to highlight your outliers project. I was looking at that online before we okay. dig into the nitty gritty stuff. I want to talk about, we explain that to us, what it is and how it came to be. Absolutely. I'd be glad to. Um, so the outliers project is when, during my gap year, when I was researching all of these things, I worked really closely with a lot of gifted educators and actually also the region gifted coordinator in my County, um, for South County. And While I was doing that, I had the opportunity of just meeting a lot of gifted families. So parents of gifted children and the kids themselves. And um, I was able to just talk to a lot of them on a really large scale about what exactly they felt was missing. And this was at the same time, I was also simultaneously doing my research on what creates gifted burnout, right? And what really is the root cause of a lot of that. And that A lot of that came from the Davidson Institute and different readings. And essentially the largest challenge, or I wouldn't say the largest challenge, but I would say I think the best way to widespreadly address gifted burnout is to ensure that gifted children are getting the right kind of stimulation early on in the way that not only is their white matter stimulated, but they're actually taught skills like time management and effort and perseverance and persistence, right? That gifted kids so often lack because they just fly through their early years. and 
gifted burnout comes from a lot of different things within the brain, right? It's very scientific, but ultimately, at least if we can equip all gifted children with certain skills and certain stimulation early on, then they're just better equipped to handle any challenges that they face because of neurodiversity or giftedness later on in their lives. So um, I, for fun, just started making kind of puzzles and different activities for some of the families, the kids of families I was working with and talking to. And a lot more parents were interested. So I started making a couple more. And then I made it a subscription for the parents in my hometown. Um, and I had about 30 subscribers at that point by the end of that first, like during my gap year. That's awesome. Then, thank you. <laughs> and then I took a break from it for a little while to do some more research and visit some schools. And then when I launched it back up, I I mean, it was like a very jank, like Wix website. It's still all super jank, but I put it up and I just made it available to anyone that wanted it. Um, and I mean, available as in for sale. Um, but I, I put that out there and I was overwhelmed by the interest. Um, I had to cap it because I'm, right now it's just me. And so, But I'm really hoping to scale that and continue that because the families have really just loved the boxes. And it's been so rewarding to watch these kids continuously make these puzzles and, you know, work at it and, you know, stick with it um, even when they're being challenged. Can you give us an example of my, what might be in one of the boxes? Absolutely. One of the first families that I worked with, they had a daughter who was, gosh, maybe 10 and a son that was actually, no, I guess the son would probably have been 10. She would have been 13. And the daughter was very interested in reading and writing. And so we gave her a, um, a box of activities that basically all had to do with the murder mystery. So we brought together her love of learning and writing, but we turned it into a puzzle just because that's what gets that white matter stimulation. And so we had asked her to write a murder mystery of her own, but we gave her the characters and the first scene. And every two and a half minutes, we had given her a little sand timer and she was supposed to pull a card from our deck of improv cards. And whatever was written on it was supposed to be her next sentence. So for example, she could be writing and then the next sentence that she pulls could be just then the doorbell rang and the gardener, John, stood outside and said, I have something to confess to you all, right? And then she has to use that sentence and twist her entire story in whatever way she needs to, to accommodate that sentence. And it's every two and a half minutes that she had to do that. That sounds so fun. <laughs> I yeah, would love to do that like a party. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, I know. Yeah, it could be an improv game. <laughs> Um, I mean, that's actually part of the boxes is one of the things I decided really early on is when I was in gifted classrooms, I realized that even like work that was giving to kindergartners when it was accurately for gifted kids, I liked doing it. Like those puzzles were fun for me. I might've been able to get through them quicker than a kindergartner, but it was still stimulating to me. And that's one of the really key things about real gifted work is that it shouldn't actually be age-based. It should really just be white matter-based. And so any box I create, if I don't personally think I could sit down and have fun with it at my age, I, I wouldn't even give it to a kindergartner. Like it's it's supposed to be stimulating. Um, I know you probably get a lot of comments about elitism, but you've talked a lot about white matter. So can you kind of explain what you mean by that and explain how giftedness literally is brain chemistry and all the good stuff? Absolutely. I would love to. Um 
Yes. And the elitism is something I would love to touch upon because gifted programs are elitist a hundred percent and they need massive reform and gifted identification is elitist. And, you know, everything that comes after that is, and always has been incredibly elitist. And also it's very racially unequal. Um, and that's, a huge problem. And it's not one that is unimportant at all. Like it is absolutely integral that that becomes addressed. However, I think that it's a very different thing to say something is elitist and therefore we need to reform it or we need to make it more accessible. And it's a different thing to say this is elitist and therefore it needs to be eliminated. And that's something that we see, for example, in New York, right, where they're eliminating gifted programs because they perpetuate inequality. And while gifted programs do in practice today perpetuate inequality, they're not inherently unequal, right? In fact, they're inherently equal. They're inherently inclusive because they're giving an education to children whose brains literally need it. And so I think it's a very important distinction to make that we need to acknowledge the way that gifted programs have been historically and are incredibly unequal. They do not give all children the same op um, opportunities. They absolutely leave out massive groups of children that need them. But to remove them altogether is to make sure that no child that needs them gets them. And I think that's something, a distinction that needs to be drawn when we talk about elitism. But getting into the white matter and what giftedness is. Giftedness, and this is very debated, but it's, you know, some places define it as like an IQ thing that's been you know, wiped away more recently because that's said to be elitist also, which it probably is. So it's defined scientifically in a bunch of different ways. But what we know for sure about giftedness is that it is a biological difference in the brain, the way any neurodivergent trait is, um, ADHD, epilepsy, et cetera, et cetera. And it's basically when a child has this white matter, which I mean, all brains have that basically allows them to be extra creative, usually, um, they tend to just be matured a little bit earlier in adolescence, they tend to hit developmental milestones earlier on, they tend to have these curiosities and questions early on that most children don't. And then it progresses well into their adulthood. Um, but the symptoms or the traits of it that we see are usually most identifiable when they're younger because that's when they tend to be more advanced than their peers. We're going to push the pause button for just a second to share some really exciting news. NCAGT's annual conference is heading to Greensboro, North Carolina on March 14th and 15th, 2024. This is an event you won't want to miss. For the latest updates on registration, keynotes, and all the things conference-related, head over to ncagt.org. And here's the best part. If you have a burning question or need more information, we've got you covered. Just shoot us an email at conference at ncagt.org. All right, let's get back to it. I want to get into this whole idea of giftedness and masking. So you said that you would love to talk about the masking game. What is that? What does it look like? Oh my God, this is huge. <laughs> I love this one. <laughs> Um, well, you would probably know because you said that you were also diagnosed with ADHD very late. <laughs> so probably preaching to the choir here, but yes. <laughs> the masking game is what we basically call the back and forth where two traits in the brain can, you know, 
mask each other or have an overlap overlap or conflict with each other in any way. So again, in my example, which I'm sure you can relate to, I was diagnosed as gifted really, really early on. I wasn't diagnosed with ADHD until a lot later, earlier than you, but <laughs> later. So the masking game in my story would basically be where I'd always had ADHD. And looking back, I mean, my parents and I were like, we don't know how we missed that one. That's, <laughs> that's crazy. But because I was always able to fly by academically, there was never any flags raised that someone had to look into me and see if there was a problem, right? Um, And that is basically where two traits, giftedness and ADHD, had come into play together and one of them had covered up the other one. And then if you want to look at later in my burnout story, when I was failing classes, that didn't look like what you would imagine a gifted child to look like. And there, I guess, like the ADHD had started to kind of overpower almost the other trait. And so that's what you call the masking game is when one trait kind of overpowers the other. And the problem with the masking game is that usually there is a switch in what's getting masked at some point in people's lives um, based on situations or circumstances or whatnot. What strategies or coping mechanisms do gifted kids with ADHD or adults, even gifted people with ADHD use to mask their symptoms? I just think that ADHD, unlike a lot of neurodivergent traits, tends to be very normalized and overlooked. And the only way that it really gets drawn attention to is when it causes a problem externally, like in the impacts is where we see ADHD, not in the internal struggle or the problem itself. And so when you talk about the impacts in people's lives, especially early on, you're looking at things like performance and work, performance in school, right? External performance. And I think that's where giftedness kind of tends to mask ADHD is that you don't see it on the grade book or the report card, right? You don't see it in someone's academic or capability performances. You just see it. I mean, they see it themselves. You might even miss it on them, right? And I think that's kind of a problem with how we look at neurodiversity more than anything else is that we are almost valuing people based on the output they put out versus the traits that they have within them, I think. So I think that's probably the biggest story as terms of like, what is the role giftedness plays in covering up ADHD is the impacts. In what ways do you think parents and teachers and just educational professionals in general can better support gifted students with ADHD to ensure that their unique needs are being met? I think the number one thing is making sure that what, you know, that kids don't get through without being identified as ADHD, um, like you and I did. And I think that the huge, huge problem there is the fact that even the word AD, like the words ADHD are inaccurate to the trait ADHD, right? And we kind of touched on this, but if people knew what ADHD really was, and that's beyond, you know, all the, everyone has a little bit ADHD or ADHD is not real or ADHD is this, ADHD is that. If people really knew what ADHD was, I think it would be so much easier for parents to catch that in children beyond the misconceptions. And if it's caught, like you and I said, the minute you know what a trait is and you can research it and there's a label and a community that you can be a part of, everything becomes easier. Like your struggles become faceable and explained and understandable. 
And I think that that's just so huge if parents just knew and it's not their fault because I mean, we didn't know. Right. (laughs) So. Well, and how would you describe if if someone says, okay, Amishi, well then what is ADHD? What would your response be? I, I really like the definition or the word vast to describe ADHD. I don't know if you've um, heard of the concept of vast. Mm-mm. Okay, so VAST was developed by Dr. Hallowell and he has a book and my mind is blinking and I'm forgetting the name of it right now. But VAST is basically proposed as an alternative to the word ADHD. So it's not like adopted by the APA or anything, but in a lot of research circles, people will just casually call the trait of ADHD as VAST nowadays. Um, and VAST is basically, it stands for it's V-A-S-T, it stands for Variable Attention Stimulus Trait. And so if you break down ADHD, you have the words attention deficit, hyperactive, and disorder, right? All three of these are on some level wrong. Like people with ADHD don't have a deficit of attention. They have an attention span that's very variable, that can move around quickly, that's caught by distraction and caught by different things very um, easily. But to say that someone has a deficit of attention is, is just false, right? And it's a mischaracteristic it's it's mischaracteristic of the trait and it leads to a lot of like inaccurate accommodations or misconceptions about ADHD because hyper focus um, is such a real thing you can exactly, your exactly. yeah like exactly I mean when you have a person with ADHD who can hyper focus and get things done for hours on end without even looking up you you can't call that a deficit of attention right it's just very shaky um Exactly. And the third word, hyperactive, we've already touched on this too. I mean, not every person with ADHD is hyperactive. And now we, you know, we use the word ADD too, but regardless, like to just narrow it down into hyperactive is, as we both can attest to false. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but when I think about hyperactive, I don't, I like to think about it too, as like hyperactive thoughts, not just necessarily being like physically hyperactive. Is that accurate? Can I think about it that way or no? Absolutely. No. Yeah, of course. Okay. <laughs> um, yes, that is, yeah, that is a trait of the ADHD brain. Now we say with ADD, like there's two tra- traits of ADD, right? Like there's the hyperactive trait and the inattentive t- trait. Um, and if under your definition of hyperactive, both of those would be the same thing. Like the inattentive trait is still a hyperactive mind. But again, I think the words are more refer- referring to the impact do we see this rowdy boy who's very hyperactive and can't sit still? That kind of thing. But no, like that's perfect. And then the fourth word is trait, sorry, disorder, which vast then replates with trait. Because the thing with ADHD is, and um, like a, Amishi Jaw, who I don't just like, she has the same name as me, but is this um, psychologist at University of Miami. She talks about how a lot of like attention um, disorders are almost beneficial if you look at them evolutionarily, right? Like there's a reason that people have ADHD and there's a reason that it's estimated that almost 60% of entrepreneurs have ADHD, for example. Like it's a it's a trait that can produce large amounts of success. And it's a trait that can also lead to disproportionate number of people with ADHD, like being in prison or losing their jobs, right? Addiction. Addiction, exactly. And so it really, really is just about the environment that people are in. And that vast kind of neutralizes that and acknowledges that by changing the word disorder for trait. So vast stands for variable attention instead of 
attention deficit. And then we call it stimulus instead of hyperactive and then trait for disorder. So if I was to talk to a parent or an educator and say, this is what you're looking for in really simple terms, I'd be like, take everything you know about ADHD and just throw it out like the window (laughs) and start fresh with this term, right? Like this is what you're looking for. And I think that like rhetoric change would probably be easier um, to identify in children. Um, when we talk about system failures for gifted students, can you provide an overview of how funding for gifted education typically works in schools or districts? Absolutely. So, um, I am not by any means an expert in terms of like where the funding actually comes from, from the national level. Um, what most of my research was done about my County and isolated to my County because that was where I was providing for kids. Um, And so in Forsyth County, for example, I had a conversation with the regional director um, of our county's gifted programs. And she sat us down and she said, there's a lot of failures here um, and a lot that needs to be worked through. And it's so deeply embedded that I think it's, it's really difficult for one person, even one who's very passionate about this and very educated on it, to really change um, in a place. So in terms of funding, there's money allotted to, sometimes there's money allotted to school districts that is given to both, like there's a budget for special needs education and there's a budget for gifted education. And those are allotted separately, but they're put in like the same fund. And the difference between the two is that special education then gets money back to the schools. Like the better your special education program are, the more money your school is likely to receive from the government. So this funny thing happens, (laughs) as you can imagine, with this fund and this bucket of money where a lot more of it, even in the percentage that's specifically allotted for gifted programs, ends up finding itself in special education programs. Now, it's a noble cause, right? It's not like they're taking this money and putting it into their football programs. And a lot of people will say like, well, isn't that a good thing, right? Like, shouldn't we support the fact that special education programs are getting a lot more money? And absolutely, it's a fantastic thing. But the problem is that it's not really a noble pursuit. It's more that schools are doing this to get money back in their pockets. And gifted programs in consequence are missing out on resources that these kids really crucially need. And to talk about these resources, for example, gifted teachers prior to the pandemic used to be required to undergo 200 credit hours of training before they could be the primary gifted education educator in a classroom. After the pandemic, that actually prior to the pandemic, that was reduced to, I believe, 10 hours, 10 on 200. And then during the pandemic, um, that was removed to absolutely zero. So now in my county, gifted teachers need zero hours of gifted specific credit certification in order to become the primary gifted educator in a classroom. That's huge because being a gifted teacher, and you would know this better than I do, is not the same as being the teacher in a regular classroom. And there's you know, emotional regulation needs and neurodivergent traits. I mean, just all kinds of things in a gifted classroom that regular teachers are not trained for. And so to miss those really crucial credit hours, and by miss, I mean, literally from 200 hours to zero is really, really harmful to students, right? And kids are going to miss out on 
the empathy first for like first and foremost in the school system that they just won't get without proper education. So that's one thing I think. And I, so in this conversation with the region coordinator for our gifted programs, I had asked her this question that I had been wondering for years, which is that in my high school, um, so I was identified in my county as gifted in kindergarten, like I mentioned. And so that means every year moving forward, I had like a little asterisk next to my name gifted in the system. So throughout high school, every time I was in an AP classroom, I noticed my first and last name both start with A. So I noticed when they went down the roster for roll call, it almost seemed like they would go through this roster in alphabetical order, but they would leave out like a chunk of students. And then my name would come around after like Z and it would start again. And then it would go through almost a second list alphabetically, but I, it didn't make sense. Like I never really knew why it was that way. And I asked the gifted coordinator, like, what's, what's up with that attendance thing, by the way, like, why do I come up in the middle of the name? middle of the list. And she said, oh, <laughs> funny you should ask. She said, essentially, there is two rosters that the teachers are reading from in AP classrooms because the gifted students are put on a different roster. And the reason for that is that they, the school is required for the funding they receive for gifted education. They're required to provide some sort of obviously gifted education to their gifted students. So what the school does is they call AP classes gifted education, and they just kind of tell the government that, okay, we're going to have these gifted kids in our AP classroom. They'll be challenged. And you know what? The teacher will just throw in some extra like stimulation for them. Like we'll put them in a group and we'll kind of treat them like they're like this gifted special group in the AP classroom. They'll get the education. Don't worry about it. And we're put into this group where we are on a separate roster and it's just kind of understood that like, okay, the teacher is supposed to do something special for them. No one defines what they're supposed to do. No one sees that it's followed through on, but that's the idea. And that's how the school receives funding for gifted education. And then obviously I went to my high school for four years and I had never even known about this. And I talked to other students years before me, years after me. And I was like, have you ever heard of this? And I mean, gifted students that had that weird roster thing had just not known about it for years. And this is not like one teacher wasn't doing it or like one year they had failed to do it. This is like the way it is. The system. Yeah, the way it is. The system. Exactly. Like I would be, I would not be surprised if a lot of the TAP teachers didn't even know like why there was two rosters. It just wasn't done. And so that is where I was like, oh my God. <laughs> Not only for if I want to talk about my burnout story, was I not, you know, given the right resources to successfully complete my high school the way that I might have been capable of had I been in the right system. They were profiting off of me and my existence in that classroom while doing it, right? Like me sitting in an AP classroom, every AP classroom that I sat in or that any other gifted student sat in was directly bringing the school money because they were claiming that they were giving me a gifted education when they weren't. And so that's where you really see this messed up system of, wait, they're profiting off of this. Like they're not just neglecting gifted students because it's hard and because they're not properly educated. It's directly putting money in their pockets to not serve us. Mm. That's wild. <laughs> yeah. So to clarify, you're in Georgia. This is North Carolina. And so I'm sure things run differently, but I know Absolutely. that there's a lot of similarities. I'm not in the high school world a lot, especially in public education for high school, mm -hmm. but I do know that 
um, one of our big issues here is AP classes are gifted ed, exactly like you're talking about. So it almost, this seems like it's probably a nationwide problem, which I'm sure most people are aware of, but this is news to me. I did not, I don't know. I think I live in like the elementary <laughs> I don't think world. Most people are so. I, I mean, don't think a lot of people are aware of this because I've never spoken to a gifted teacher who knew about this before I mentioned it. Like, and I didn't know about this until, well, you know. And it's so funny too that you mentioned the hours that gifted teachers have to have because I think that all teachers should have, and I think it, for me, I think it makes sense to start in undergrad. I think undergrad classes, how you have behavior management courses and all these other things, you should have a course on gifted education. It should be something that all teachers are taught about going into any age classroom. Because a lot of times in North Carolina, in order to identify gifted children, you can have teacher referrals. And when I taught third grade, there wasn't a gifted program for third graders, but in fourth grade there was. And I had to go to the IG teacher and say, these are children you should look at and put them on the map, put them on the radar. Mm -hmm. And luckily I knew. And so I was able to help my teammates know, but People just don't know. Thank you for working with your teammates and your colleagues and doing that because you're right that teachers should all know something about giftedness because like you said, it's not people who are certified with giftedness that are going in and deciding who's going to be you know, tested. It's regular teachers that are supposed to identify this trait that like ADHD, I would argue the word gifted is horrible in terms of rhetoric and so many kids fall through the cracks, right? Um, we actually have this story of a teacher who was really just passionate about this in like in Georgia. And she got moved to a new school. And as soon as she went in there, she would just go in, sit in regular classrooms um, and just identify kids just by being in there. And there, the amount of kids that that school tested for giftedness in that year went up by 43% by having her just sit in different classrooms. And that's wild because if one person can make so much of an impact, imagine how many kids that we're just missing out on, on like a national scale that need this education and that aren't getting it because teachers gifted or not don't know what it means to be gifted. And what, yeah. And like what to look for. And there's just so many misconceptions out there too. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, and that's one of the reasons why we want to do this podcast is try to make just knowledge a little bit more accessible for people. Um, Especially because if you think about the lives that educators live, like a lot of them, not all of them, but a huge chunk of them are moms driving kids from soccer practice to basketball and just on the go, you know, and like when there is PD after school, teachers sit in the room and they're not being paid to sit there after school hours. And a lot of times it's not going to be on gifted ed. So we've done several episodes on common myths and misconceptions. And that was just so eye-opening and interesting. And just because I was going to ask you if you had any suggestions on how we can raise awareness about really anything, everything we're talking about today, but do you have any ideas of how to raise awareness? It sounds like you've been plowing a path, working on it yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I love the breaking common myths idea. Please do more of them. I need to start tuning into them. (laughs) I'm going to throw those everywhere I can and just send them out because that's such a good idea. And you're right. Teachers, really the burden shouldn't be on teachers. 
teachers. Like as much as I'm like, oh, they need more credit hours. Again, teachers have enough on their plate as it is, right? It's just this deep system failure that, I mean, teachers are just one of the kind of means that one of the failure happens through. But in terms of spreading awareness for all of this, I think, let's see, because I was going to say the biggest thing is that the place where most gifted children and families come together is going to be the gifted classroom, right? Like that's the one place where even parents who might not know what giftedness means, their kids might be tested and put into that program. And suddenly they at least are aware of the word gifted, even if they don't know anything else about it. So wherever possible, I think to educate gifted teachers on, you know, what giftedness really is and the struggles that these children not only might be facing then in the classroom, but that they might even face eight, 10 years down the line in their education so that teachers can just push that forward to parents, right? Or so that they can be aware of what traits they need to be building in children really early on. And again, that's well beyond the curriculum of what they're being paid to teach. And like I said, it's not like teachers don't have enough on their plates as it is. But I think if there's a way that they can just innately have that education, I think that that just kind of grows empathy overall, right? Like I haven't met a gifted teacher who is really, really passionate about gifted children, maybe has like one or two of her own and is not also advocating for different changes within the system or is not also teaching other teachers in her school and their school and you know, talking to parents and that kind of thing. Like every gifted teacher that I've worked with has been so incredibly just taken this immense amount of initiative on themselves to really push change forward. And I think that that is so commendable because it's not what's expected of them. But I do feel that the education that you get on gifted children and what it really means, and the more that you're open to the problems that these kids are facing, I feel that all of us kind of take it on as our responsibility the minute we have empathy for it. And I think that's the biggest problem ultimately in the system is that there's no empathy for kids with giftedness. There's no empathy for kids with ADHD. Like the second that someone is not neurotypical, there's this drop in the empathy that they receive for the problems that they're facing in their education. And so however much we can educate teachers who then can act as kind of the forefront people on this army of let's educate parents and kids and everybody, I think that's the more, that's the best way that we can build empathy within the school system. And I think that's what's ultimately going to have just the biggest impact is teaching people so they can have empathy. I love the idea of teaching undergrad college students when they're getting their degrees, even if it's not going to be in gifted ed, no matter what age they're going into, I think they should have to go through something. So what we try to do on our first season with this podcast is find universities throughout North Carolina that we're doing a good job of um, doing something with giftedness in their, in their programs for undergrad students and Meredith uh, college in Raleigh. We interviewed one of the directors of the education program there. And she highlighted a lot of different ways that they're incorporating like gifted ed into the classes that they already have on their list. And it was just awesome to see that there are schools out there doing stuff and trying to get the message, but we've reached out to a lot of other universities and haven't heard back. And part of me wonders if maybe they just aren't doing anything. 
that's what it is, you know? So, but I think thinks you're probably correct. (laughs) So I think we're going to keep like reaching out to people that way and, um, and doing that. But, um, another thing you said that I thought was really interesting and uh, like kind of a hot take is gifted ed is really strong in elementary school. Then you go to middle school and it tapers off a little bit. And then in high school, it's uh, like you said, with your story, the AP classes, and that's about it. But no one prepares gifted kids to leave the classroom and go into the real world and almost prepare them and their parents for college and, you know, all the, all the stuff. So, yeah, <laughs> you, you pass this test when you're really young and they're like, here's the medal. You get to go to this fun classroom. And, and then it's just, <laughs> you were gifted at one point in elementary school when you had that class. And what are you now? <laughs> Well, and I feel like a lot of times, like you'll talk to some people that were grew up in in the AIG program and they hated it because they were pulled out of class to go to another room. And so they would miss fun things in their classroom. And so, yeah, there's a lot of work to be to be done. Do you have an academically talented child who's looking for a challenging and exciting summer program? Summer Institute for the Gifted provides innovative academic programs for exceptional students from all over the world. Enroll now at some of the top universities in the country, including UNC Chapel Hill, for courses like robotics, creative writing, and neuroscience. These courses are designed to engage and inspire your child, allowing them to grow into the next best version of themselves. To learn more and enroll, visit our website at giftedstudy.org. How can our listeners get in contact with you? If they wanted to reach Uh, out to you or hear more from you, how can they reach you? Well, I would say the first thing is just the contact form on the Outliers Project. Um, Like I mentioned, I... Like I will be the one responding to all of those and I would absolutely love to get messages that way. Um, Also the TikTok page that I've been putting information out on, the one that you and I met through is Counting Perspectives. And again, those messages I'll be on there. Um, So I think those would probably be the two primary places, easiest places that they could reach me. Awesome. And I'll, we'll be sure to tag all of that in like the show notes so that they have access to it. Um, Okay. The last question that I wanted to ask you, when we think about the term giftedness, sometimes the term can lead to misconceptions and can even prevent students from being identified because they don't check these preconceived boxes. Do you agree that the term gifted is problematic? And if so, what would you choose to rename it? This is such a good question. (laughs) I love it. I agree that it's problematic. I think any neurodivergent trait is just a trait, right? Like we've already established that ADHD, for example, can succeed or lead to failure in different environments. I think ultimately any trait is just the result of the environment you put it in and the empathy that the child with it receives. Giftedness does not always lead to high achieving, to high achievement, right? Nor does, and I mean, someone had actually commented this on one of my videos, like I use the word gifted, even though I don't necessarily like it just because it's what most people relate to. And, you know, I have people that'll comment on my videos, like, like, don't use this word. It's horrible. And I'm like, I agree with you. I'm sorry. (laughs) And they'll say like one commenter actually said, oh, it's this horrible, like religious conception. And it had never occurred to me where the word gifted came from until that moment. And I thought, oh yes, (laughs) we're implying that it was gifted. Right. And I do, I do agree that it's, 
a problematic word. I think that it perpetuates so many of the problems that come from or like come from the education in terms of giftedness. Like they don't need help. They'll be fine. They're gifted. Right. I, I just think that it's, if I could just go back in time and change the word <laughs> that was used to describe that trait, I feel like we would have a massively different system today and a massively different amount of education, awareness, and empathy about the trait today. Um, now, what would I change it to? <laughs> that is interesting. Solve all the world's problems, go. <laughs> I feel like I need like four business days to think about this. <laughs> like eating my breakfast tomorrow and being like, what would I change it to? <laughs> well, I love what you said about ADHD being changed to vast. That's yeah. really neat. I agree. I didn't come up with that one though. So. No, no. <laughs> oh, let's see. If I was calling, so <laughs> maybe this is just the moment I do some sh- shameless self promo because when I was putting together the Outliers project, I thought, well, I want to make this for gifted kids, but I don't want the word gifted anywhere in it. And on the website, the few places where I do have to use the word giftedness to explain to people like literally what I do, I call it so-called giftedness because I'm like, I just don't want that word anywhere near this project. And I think maybe just an outlier or some some word that encompasses that a child is different. And then when I say outlier, I don't necessarily even mean like a mathematical outlier on a curve of any sort. I more just mean a child who is just different, right? Like their thinking is different. Their creativity is different. Their learning ways and emotional regulation might be different. Like we can't even name all the ways that a child who is gifted is going to be different than a neurotypical child because every child is gifted in a different way. So I like the word outliers or just something that emphasizes that there is difference and there's diversity in in brains, which is pretty cool. I love that. It's a beautiful answer. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming and being here today. I will absolutely, I'm excited to follow along on your TikTok and your website. I work for a gifted school and I would love to share this resource with the parents there um, I do our newsletter. So I'll be slapping this website on the end. Of, on the, <laughs> I'll be putting it on there for sure. But I'm just so excited for you. And I hope school goes well. And I'm just excited to follow along on your journey. It's been so nice to meet you. Thank you so much, Hannah. I like really, really do feel the same. You Thank you so much for reaching out to me. And more than that, thank you so, so much for all the work you're doing as a gifted educator. I know that it's not easy, but it sounds like you're really passionate and making a difference about it. And there you have it. We truly appreciate your time spent with us today. If you enjoyed this episode of They'll Be Fine, please consider sharing your thoughts. Leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Audible would mean the world to us, but we understand if it feels like a lot. Even a quick five-star rating or sharing this episode on your own social media can make a significant impact. Your support helps us reach more families and educators who are navigating and advocating for their gifted loved ones. We hope you'll join us on our next episode as we sit down with another amazing stakeholder in the gifted community. Until then, take care.